Isaiah chapter 8. So that's on page 679 in the church Bibles. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mahashalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. That is, he he, he, uh, was with his wife, and they they, uh, conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Mahashalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to say, to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, the mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching over to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you people, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me, with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to all of the inhabitants in Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, they shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell on Mount Zion. And when they, when they say to you, inquire of mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They'll pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And turn their faces upward. And they look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for who is in anguish. In the former time, he has brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of darkness on, hit, on hit them has light shone. 
Okay, now let's uh, ask God's help as we look into his word this evening. Oh, Father, we do thank you so much that you have revealed yourself in history so many times through prophets. But most of all, Lord, you revealed yourself in Jesus, your son. And we pray, Lord, that tonight we may... uh, Find, Lord, uh, truth in this word which will both warn us and encourage us in our Christian lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you can see that, well, you might see, if you look on the internet, I've said Isaiah's time capsules, signs and portents of human destiny. What do I mean? Well, what's a time capsule? Actually, I noticed this in my grandson's school just three days ago, uh, three or four days ago. That's what suggested the title to me when I was thinking over, the, over, the, uh, over this uh, particular sermon. That about ten years ago, they did a t- put a time capsule. And what's a time capsule? Well, according to uh, Twinkle, which is a children's website, a time capsule can be understood as a way of keeping objects and writing memories and ideas down in one particular place before returning to them in future. And uh, you may know that actually there's been all kinds of time capsules since I think it was about the 1730s when someone first thought of, of uh, perhaps putting under the foundation stone of a house objects from the 1730s, written documents, newspapers, or whatever it is, to be opened at some time in the future to give an insight into what was happening in those days. And, it, it, I mean, it's all over the place. People now put time capsules down, particularly in schools. But what am I talking about when I'm saying Isaiah's time capsules? Well, in the verses where we were looking at both last week and tonight, we see, we see that God chose particular types of time capsules, we might say, which in, which contain truths, predictions, which would be later understood, which in actually hundreds of years later in some cases would suddenly be, oh, that's what he was talking about. In uh, the particular passage we've been looking at in, uh, in chapter 8, we have, for instance, the time capsule of this large tablet. I mentioned last week that we know from uh, Assyrian archaeology uh, and Middle Eastern archaeology People used to put up large notice boards and, uh, you know, write something on them. Often it was to do with the kings of, of the particular uh, nations. But in this case, Isaiah, Isaiah's child that he was, he was eventually going to have was, was actually put up. This, this notice was put up. And it would stand there until, obviously, it decayed or someone knocked it down or something. But it would stand there and then it would be understood later. And in fact, uh, as we mentioned last week, Mahershalal Hashbaz is a, a long uh, Hebrew expression talking about swift to the booty, you know, swift to the campaign in which there's going to be a, uh, a devastating onslaught and, and, and people are going to be uh, people are going to be taken captive and booty is going to be uh, is going to be captured from them. Now, the people of Israel were actually only going to understand that time capsule. A couple of years later, and uh, as as we'll see when when I'm uh, referring in in the the text to what actually happened, 
But also, we have not only just the notice board, but we also have a baby that's going to be born, which has also got that name. And so that name is testifying to that same event, that same disaster that was going to come upon the Israelites. And then thirdly, we have the time capsule of Isaiah's own predictions, of his own, not just the predictions, but his teaching in Isaiah, the whole of Isaiah, of course, eventually got to be written, but at this point in Isaiah's career, he was still a relatively young prophet. And we have, um, you know, the content uh, in uh, Isaiah 1 to 7 of his first prophecies. These were written down on a scroll. And amongst his disciples, they did what, for time immemorial, men in, in the ancient world did, which was they learned off by heart the words, as well as having a written copy of what Isaiah was saying. Now, the point about um, uh, you know, th this method is, what at the moment cannot be understood it will later be clearly understood and verified to be true and an accurate prediction. And so, there's three time capsules, but these ca time capsules contain um, prophecies which are, are omens and portents, we might say. Signs and portents. Now, portents, that, that uh, word is usually used in the occult. You know? uh, people say, oh, you know, something's going to happen. We've, you know, the, something's happened to uh, a strange uh, thing in the sky. It's a portent of doom. And, of course, later on in the passage, um, Isaiah talks about people seeking knowledge from the occult, from spirits, from the dead. Predictions about the future. And it is almost as if God is sarcastically saying to these people, you're seeking portents, you're seeking uh, to know the future and getting predictions from evil spirits or from, from the dead people that you think you're consulting. But actually, I am, I am giving you the real diagnosis of what actually is going to happen. Throw away your almanacs. Throw away your, your Ouija boards. Throw away all of your, your, your equipment for contacting the spirits. Should not the living consult the living God, not consult the dead, which is what he, what, roughly what he says later. And so we, we see that uh, in, this, in the prophecies of Isaiah, and actually not just here, but especially in the middle part of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 to 55, Isaiah contains uh, names and, uh, and, and uh, ideas which would have probably not been understood by his contemporaries. Uh, when um, Cyrus the Mede is mentioned, Cyrus the Persian is mentioned, in, uh, later on in Isaiah 40 to 55, the people would have, well, who's he talking about? Just as in fact... They would have no doubt have said, what does he mean, Mahashalal Bahashbaz, and what does he mean by, by, um, uh, by, these, uh, by, they, by these other uh, strange names? Only later was the interpretation, when the time was right, did they understand? Now, um, I think we need to, uh, therefore, understand that um, these uh, signs and portents are extremely important uh, for us understanding, understanding um, uh, the actual message of uh, Isaiah in, this, in these areas. He was talking about terrible times that were ahead, not only for the northern kingdom, but for all, also for the southern kingdom. Now, uh, if we could just uh, 
look at uh, uh, the specifics of uh, his message, you'll see that in verse 6, which is on page um, 880, the Lord speaks to Isaiah after uh, having, um, having uh, had uh, the, the, the placard put up and also having discovered his wife is pregnant and he's going to call um, the name of the baby and in, uh, in the name of the baby is the prediction of terrible times ahead. He then gives, God gives the reason to Isaiah why these terrible times ahead. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. Now, how was this going to be understood? Well, within two years, um, Rezin and Ramalia, both kings, would, uh, would, would have, have, uh, have uh, disasters. Um, um, Rezin and his, his father, uh, uh, king of Syria, um, would f- meet their great defeat. Um, contemporary to these things happening, they'd had a great victory, which I read about earlier. Great victory over, over, uh, over Judah. But there was going to come a time of reckoning. But you see, far from it being right for the people of Judah to rejoice over, oh yeah, all of their, our enemies have been killed. They've all, oh great, rejoicing over the doom that came upon um, both um, Syria and, um, uh, and uh, uh, the northern kingdom. Actually, they were utter hypocrites. Why? Because, well, in just the same way as, as Syria was a pagan kingdom and the northern kingdom had also was not following the law of God, Judah itself was not obeying the word. They had rejected the waters of Siloa. Now, what does that mean? Well, actually, there was a stream that used to run through Jerusalem. It was a very gentle, um, a gentle, um, it wasn't a river, but a kind of a, a bubbling, uh, bubbling brook almost, not a very large stream at all, but which did bring refreshing water to the city. And um, this became a picture of the way that God worked and keeps Jerusalem uh, f- filled with life. And it's a picture, actually, really, of um, the living water that is God himself. Um, Jeremiah, later on, talked about, you've rejected the source of living waters, and you've hewn out for yourself dirty, disgusting cisterns that don't even hold water, just full of mud and frogs. And you've, re- you, you've, you've turned aside from the water of life. And this is what the people of Israel, uh, the people of Judah and Jerusalem had done. Now, you see... You might say, oh, no, it's all Ahaz's fault. He was a terrible bloke and he was the king. Yes, but the people didn't have to do it, did they? They didn't have to follow him. They went into the the pagan temples. They followed the customs. They followed the desires uh, of their own hearts. They walked in their own ways. It wasn't just they had a king. The king reflected their own spiritual rebellion. He uh, He was not the sole reason for... Uh, for it, the disasters coming upon Israel. It was Israel itself. That's why uh, Isaiah is always talking about a remnant. It's a remnant 
that will return. It's a remnant that have remained obedient to God. There are a few of Isaiah's disciples and there are a few other godly, uh, godly Jews in Judah uh, that were continuing to follow the law of Moses. But the majority had, had rejected him. And we have this, this picture. He says, because the people have refused the waters of Shiloh, verse 7, therefore behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. Now, Ahaz and the, and the people of Jerusalem are looking to the immediate enemy that was uh, Syria and the northern kingdom. But actually there was a much worse enemy to come. The Assyrians, who were basically the Nazis of the ancient world, who rejoiced in cruelty. I've mentioned this before about them, but if you go to the British Museum, you'll see lots of their... Uh, their carvings, uh, of, uh, of their brutalities. They were, we might say, a mega Hamas of the ancient world. Um, they didn't just defeat armies, they massacred ev anyone and everyone they could. Um, and indeed, when eventually Assyria um, besieged Jerusalem, um, actually most of the towns and villages uh, of, uh, in Judah were actually depopulated, either murdered and killed barbarically, or they were taken off um, and, de and, and, and uh, taken away as slaves. Um, the Assyrians would uh, be like a flood upon uh, the country. And you'll say it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its overspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. A terrible, terrible invasion was eventually going to happen. Now, this was many years in the future. This was many years in the future from here. Um, you see, um, um, the northern kingdom itself wouldn't be destroyed by the Assyrians until 722 BC. And this was 12 years before that, 12 or 14 years before that. And it was years after 722, I think it was 704 BC, another 18 years later, when actually Judah was finally besieged by the Assyrians. And Isaiah was still alive and uh, advising Hezekiah the king, who was a, who was a, who, who was a believer and indeed a, a pretty good believer who uh, followed um, uh, the law of God uh, wholeheartedly. Um, so many, many years in the future was when this disaster was going to happen. But because the Lord wanted to show that uh, he has all knowledge and all power, it's revealed to his prophets in advance. And it uh, reveals a terrible, terrible um, uh, judgment upon Israel. Now, I want, I want us to notice, though, that basically... The child Emmanuel is mentioned. Now, on, a, on another sermon, I'm going to be talking about Emmanuel, this child. And, of course, it's referring to ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we'll go into that in much more detail. But I want you to notice that at the end of this prediction of terrible judgment, terrible judgment upon the people, it, it says, and its outspread wings like a horrible bird of prey, a horrible vulture pouncing upon a dying animal. So Assyria will pounce upon Jerusalem and pounce upon uh, Judah. Its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. 
Now, it's almost here a change, a, 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 a change of mood of, of a lament. Uh, not merely of judgment, but of sorrow and anguish of what was going to happen. And I want us to notice that all of the prophets shared this anguish over this message they had to bring. It was a message of judgment and of punishment for evil. But at the same time, being men of, of the, the, their own country and their families and relatives and their friends, they, they felt it in their hearts how terrible and awful this was going to be. Now, I want to just point out how important it is that we as believers also have that, uh, that, uh, that real desire that people should actually, be, should actually be saved and not come into disaster. Now, we know that there is going to be a day of judgment. And that day of judgment is going to be a terrible time for those who are lost. And I, I, there will be lamentation from those who are being lost. But I think also we ourselves on that day of judgment, though we be saved, for a, a time, for a time while we're, we're still, if you like, in, in the court and see people being taken away. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm using very simple terms for probably something that is much more complex. Um, but using very simple terms, I would say that we will feel so, so sad for those people for that brief time. Um, so sad that they, they are lost. Now, Paul in Romans chapter 9 talks about this, doesn't he? In those first few verses in Romans 9, he says, I've unceasing anguish in my heart for my people. Now, that is what we should have. If we are certain that there's going to be a day of judgment and that those who are lost will, uh, lost without Christ now will be lost forever in the outer darkness, we need to lament and we need to have that sorrow and anguish turning into prayer, turning into action. We need to, you know, empower our prayers by being aware of the plight of the lost. Um, the great missionary movements in all continents were empowered by this great compassion um, that um, the believers, the missionaries had, mirroring Jesus who, who, who saw that people were like sheep without a shepherd, who wept over Jerusalem. Jesus who said, I've come for this purpose, to preach the good news. And he came and preached the good news and saw people saved through his own preaching and he knew that indeed as a result of the travails of his soul uh, that there would be innumerable people that would be saved and he would be, he would be happy over, over that fact. So let's ourselves uh, uh, be aware firstly of a, of a great disaster that is going to come upon the world at some point. Uh, not just wars, but actually the day of judgment. But I also want to just notice this, that there's another mood change comes over Isaiah, um, because in verse 9 and 10, suddenly it turns from a lamentation into a, almost a war cry. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen um, uh, news, uh, news things about uh, heavyweight boxers uh, meeting together uh, for the weigh-in, and... Uh, when they meet, they often badmouth each other. And they say, oh, I'm, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that to you. And the other bloke will either say nothing or then just say as much in return. Now, look what 
Um, God speaks uh, in this situation through Isaiah. Verse 9. Be broken, you people, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. So he's not talking here to, to the northern kingdom. He's not talking to Judah. He's talking to the invading armies, uh, to the godless world. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Do what you like. You're going to lose. Take counsel together. But it'll come to nothing. You plan, you strategy all you like, it'll come to nothing. Speak your words, but they won't stand, for God is with us. Now, uh, those were the words that, that God revealed to Isaiah, that he spoke through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want us to notice this, that in our situation that we're in, and we were thinking this morning, Henry mentioned some of the ideological foes that we in the West face, of uh, uh, people that basically are advocating sexual immorality uh, and uh, uh, transgender ethics uh, or lack of ethics where people are prepared to, to, uh, to, to hurt, manipulate young children uh, because they insist their ideas about gender are correct and they are prepared to ruin the lives of thousands of children in order that their views are, are put forward. We face all kinds of ideological enemies, but also, uh, uh, at times, the church has faced physical enemies. We've faced, uh, has faced a whole empire, uh, which Henry mentioned this morning, the Roman Empire, which set its face against Christianity. The thing is this, the gates of hell will not, will not prevail against the church that God has made. Bring all the false prophets in the world. Bring, the devil bring, can bring all his temptations, all his persecutions, all of his despicable strategies, but the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. They will be broken. Whatever is going to happen in this world in the next 20, 30 years, 50 years, whether it be nuclear wars or nuclear winter, whether there be climate change or whether there be, uh, there be actually uh, an ice age, whether there be a minority of people, small minority of Christians left, or whether there be an overflowing number of, of Christians in the world, whatever happens, the enemies of God in the end will be broken. We are not to be intimidated. You see, that's one of the, uh, one of the things that we see that... Uh, um, in verse 11, it says that the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not con call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Now, what uh, the Lord is saying to Isaiah is this, that he was surrounded by all kinds of uh, ideas that might intimidate him. The, uh, we read earlier about um, Ahaz and the people of Israel. They, they were trembling like leaf at this, this, uh, this, amount, at this uh, conspiracy between the Syrian uh, king and the, and the uh, northern kingdom's king to destroy Judah. And they were trembling. Conspiracy, conspiracy. And everybody said, oh, have you heard the latest news? And all this kind of stuff. 
uh, I mean, all of the time, of course, YouTube and the internet is driven by conspiracies in which basically, you know, uh, if you take them seriously, you spend all the, you wouldn't get any sleep. You'd be worried all the time about, oh dear, the doctors of this country are trying to, you know, they're trying to halve the population or they're trying to do this or they're putting things in the vaccines and all these other, all these other conspiracy theories. We might be intimidated into actually, uh, you know, changing our whole lifestyles. In the case of uh, Isaiah, God warns Isaiah, look, do not, do not allow yourself to be drawn into this climate of fear. Don't be intimidated. The only person you are to fear is me. Now, that is quite a, quite a word, quite a revolutionary word to the 21st century. No, no, no. It's not climate change, which we really have to fear, even if climate change, whatever it is, whether it's a correct interpretation of science or not, if it, if it is a correct interpretation of the science, it's still not the thing we should really be fearing. And it's not really a nuclear war or germ warfare or chemical warfare or earthquakes or any of these things we should be really fearing. Our dread should be the Lord God. Now that's, that, you know, it's, it, this is quite, quite, hard for many people to take this. They say, oh no, you've got to be talking about God as a God of love. Well, God is a God of mercy and love and kindness, what we see in the face of Jesus Christ. But also, we're told, uh, and I'll repeat the words um, here in the Bible, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Uh, I haven't heard uh, Christians often say, oh, you know, uh, I'm filled with dread of God. <laughs> and um, understandably, because, of course, the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. It doesn't mention in the New Testament uh, the idea of having dread over you. But it does talk in the New Testament about fearing God. It does say the fear of God was upon them all. God did many mighty things. And, they be, and the fear of God was over them. And it's mentioned on many occasions that we should reverence and fear God. You know, even as we come to worship, let's worship God in, in, you know, with trembling, with reverence and awe. Because our God is a consuming fire. And uh, so... I think it's a, it's a corrective we ought to bear in mind whenever we do start getting a bit depressed or worried by the headlines. No, 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 no. The only person there is to dread in this universe is God because he's the only one that not only can kill bodies but can destroy souls. But of course, that doesn't, the Bible doesn't just end with a message of dread. That's just the beginning for the Christian. Once someone has come to fear the Lord, they then discover that God has revealed himself as a God of infinite love and mercy and kindness so that those who are under the threat of doom can find light. Now, um, just, I just want to finish by, by saying this. You'll see that um, it says in verses um, 20, uh, 21 onwards, talking about the people under God's judgment, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they'll look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness 
but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now, this is where these chapter headings in the Bible are so misleading. Uh, here, terribly misleading. Because, of course, verse, 20, uh, verse 22 leads straight on to chapter 9, verse 1. There's the gloom, there's the anguish, there's the, and, uh, there's the dread of, of, uh, of the God who can punish in such a way. But also there's this wonderful message. There'll be no gloom for, who, for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And here we have this wonderful prediction of the coming of Jesus into this world. And bringing to the dread and the gloom and the anguish the joy of salvation to all who received it. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, I just want to finish by, by uh, saying uh, to anybody who may be online or anybody in the church that it's still not right with God. Jesus Christ has come to bring light in the darkness. He's come to heal broken hearts. He's come to set us free from the devil and the darkness. He's come to empower us and to give us the power to live a Christian life. And uh, that's what Christmas, the Christmas season, actually is about. In the middle of the dark, darkest days of the year, we celebrate the coming of the light of, God, uh, light of God into the world, Jesus himself. Now, whether Jesus was actually born on December the 25th or not, it doesn't really matter whether he, whether he was born uh, in those particular weeks that we're in at the moment. But certainly, uh, the truth is that it is appropriate that in the darkness, the dark nights, we have this wonderful light of Christ um, being remembered. And uh, I would you know, call upon all of us here to rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, in that he has brought light to the gloom and darkness of those of, those of us who are wandering in the night without, without Christ. Your sins are forgiven if you trust in Jesus. You have eternal life if you trust in Jesus. You're not alone in this world if you trust in Jesus. Uh, you, cannot, you cannot be defeated by the devil if you trust in Jesus. If God is for you, who can be against you? You know, can, can troubles, distress, persecution, or the sword, can any of these things separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No. And uh, the wonderful thing about Isaiah is that he had a glimpse into the glory of Jesus 700 years before Jesus came into this world. John tells us this. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and wrote of him. And uh, I, I, in future studies in Isaiah, I hope to look into a bit more detail into, the, uh, into these matters. But uh, I'm going to just close this part uh, in a word of prayer, and then we're going to sing the last hymn. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for your wonderful love uh, shown in the Lord Jesus. And Lord, such a marvelous coming was not we, we thank you lord that you you didn't just give one or two little indications but all over the bible 
are these wonderful signs and portents of the coming of the king, of the coming of salvation and new life to people who don't deserve it. We thank you for this, Lord, and we pray that each one of us will trust in the Lord and in this week uh, go forward, Lord, uh, in uh, confidence with you. And uh, we pray, Lord, we may be filled with the Spirit, with your love, joy, peace, kindness, long-suffering, patience, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we may uh, know your, the, the power of God in our inner lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.